Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part conversation with family therapist and author Katherine Young about the multimodal attachment therapy she developed. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. Today on the podcast, we are going to be speaking with Katherine Young. Katherine is the developer of a type of therapy called multimodal attachment therapy. And she's going to be talking with us about that model today. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing about it and hearing our conversation. Before we get going on that, I would like to give you a little bit of information about Katherine's background. She is an LMFT, an author, trainer, and clinical supervisor and child and family therapist. She's worked for over 25 years with children and families in diverse settings as mental health, children's day treatment, foster and adoption services, children's shelters, and youth probation. So she, as I said earlier, is here to talk to us about a therapy model for helping children with attachment challenges and their families, and it's called multimodal attachment therapy. So stay tuned. Catherine will be with us momentarily. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am continuing my conversation with Katherine Young this week, and she is speaking with us about multimodal attachment therapy, which is a model of uh, an integrated whole brain approach to working with attachment injuries with children and their families. That's actually the subtitle of the book. So Katherine, welcome back to the podcast today. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. So previously we talked about a bit of your history, some of the different models that influenced your work and how you were on a journey to put together components of different things that you were learning and different things that you were experiencing and working with children and families into a model, a more comprehensive model. Would that be a good way to say it? Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's right on. Yeah, good. So so now that we've laid that groundwork, let's talk more about what multimodal attachment therapy actually is and some specific things it entails. So you talk about the frame um, in the book and that there's two parts to that. Could you share a little bit about that aspect of the therapy, which is really the beginning point? Yeah, um, the frame, every uh, multimodal attachment therapy, which I shortened to call MMAT, is um, 
um, is a very structured therapy. Um, and so first, let's just talk about the importance of structure. For these kids, structure is really, really helpful. It helps reduce anxiety, helps uh, allow them to participate appropriately and not you know, try and control the situation out of an anxiety or fear base. Um, so structure in and of itself is important. And every session, every parent-child session has the same structure. Now, you can be really creative within that structure and do different things. But the, um, the first part is attachment-based play which uh, the child and parent comes in and you engage immediately in attachment-based play. And um, we can talk a little bit about what that means later if you want. Um, and then the middle part is sort of a talk section. And when I say talk, I'm, I'm really broad in that term because it, it may include games associated with different skill building. It may include a bunch of different things, not just verbal talking. Um, and then, But then it ends with um, sort of a feeding and... Uh, attachment-based questions piece. So the frame is is the first and last part. The middle is is the talk part, but the frame is the attachment-based play, and then the the feeding and attachment questions at the end. Um, so every session starts and begins with those, um, and then the middle part has a lot more flexibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine a lot of listeners hearing about that are th- are thinking about theraplay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when we hear about feeding children and we hear about attachment based play. So, so what are some of the similarities and differences? You know, in this part, you know, theraplay yeah. versus the model you're doing? Well, I can't fully speak to that because I, I did take a TheraPlay training. It was many years ago. And I understand that TheraPlay has evolved since then. So I can't really, I don't really feel uh, competent to say this is this way, this is that way. But I do would say that the attachment-based play, I know that the um, sort of the the main components or, or whatever are at least termed differently. For, for the attachment-based play that I'm doing, we're talking about um, uh, anything that involves eye contact, mirroring, um, touch and rhythm or song, um, which I know are a lot of the components in, um, theraplay as well. But, um, again, it's, it's, it's just referenced a little bit differently. And, um, again, I just don't feel comfortable doing a sort of like, uh, uh, piece to piece comparison because I just am not familiar enough with theraplay. Right. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, and then you, do you want to share a little, you know, you said you could give more examples of the play. Um, Maybe if you want to also go into some examples of the talking parts or the skill building parts, like what, whatever feels, whatever comes to mind (laughs) to best explain it. Yeah. So attachment-based play is based on sort of the earliest interactions between parents, children. Um, and, and we do this naturally with our kids. We, we make eye contact with our little, little ones and we, we mirror each other. We, we say silly sounds and the other person says silly sounds back. The baby says silly sounds back to us. And there's sort of this interaction that happens. Um, um, and then we play patty cake, right? And we do a lot of touching and we do a lot of silliness. Um, so that's kind of attachment Based plays based on those. And like I said, the, the, the four sort of uh, critical pieces for me in my work with attachment-based plays is an attachment-based play needs to include any one of these four um, eye contact, touch, um, seeing and rhythm. I mean, think about babies, we hold them, we sing them, we rock with them. That's like one of our, our primary ways of soothing. And also rhythm is really regulating anyway. Um, and then um, I think I missed one. I said, uh, 
uh, well, that's rhythm and singing, uh, mirroring, I think I miss mirroring, um, touch and eye contact, Um, because these are all basic ways that we interact with with very young children. And and, and, uh, attachment-based play is regressive, meaning we're letting the kid go back to where they need to be. Um, So we're often doing uh, games that would be younger than we would expect for, um, for the child's chronological age. Um, you know, we're playing clapping games, maybe with a teenager and their mom, and that's great. Or we're playing, um, um, let's see what other kinds of games we're doing. Um, um, mirroring types of things or just other kinds of, um, or, or making silly faces back and forth. And, um, it, it may be very different than, um, than what we might think of for that aged child. But again, it's, it's kind of letting them go back to what they need and kind of filling them up from that, that place. Um, so that's attachment-based play. The talk section, um, there's two parts that I think are are relatively unique to MMAT, and that is the story of love. It's really the it's the first talk intervention you do. Yes, um, I was, was going to ask you about that, <laughs> so I'm glad you're already initiating bringing it up. <laughs> so the story of love is is really fun. I have never seen a child not, you know. Uh, not kind of be okay with it in some way. Um, so, so, so this usually happens in, in like your first really parent child session after you've done your assessments and all that, but your first real sort of therapy uh, or sorry, MMAT session. Um, so they come in, you do some, some play and, uh, and then you, um, and then you ask the parent, you say, you know, Hey, um, so I'm really curious. And you kind of take that curious stance and you go, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm just really wondering, like, gosh, you know, when, when was the first time, let's say the child's name is Alex. When's the first time that you, um, that you really noticed you loved Alex, you know, and he let the parent respond, you know, and the parent can say any of a number of things. And, um, you know, then you might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like how much you love him. Do you love him like this much, you know, and you might show like your hands close together, this much, this much, you know, far apart. And parents will, you know, I have not had a parent that can't respond to these questions appropriately. And, you know, and they'll say, oh, you know, to the moon and back or this much and put their hands out wide or as far as you can or whatever. And then you go, well, you know, okay. So you, you, you know, so they've told you when they first loved their child and you know depending if they're adopted or if they're you know biological child that that time frame will change but um you know but then you, you kind of go through time and you're you're building this story that the child was loved is loved and will be loved so you go like okay so okay i get it when they were a baby you know babies you know, babies are cute who doesn't love babies you know, we all love babies but, but you know sometimes once they start running around and getting into everything that can be tough did you still love them when they were like two or three and you know again the parent will re- respond appropriately hopefully and uh, like i said i haven't had a, a bad experience with this at this point um and then you know and then you go go into the future you know okay yeah well two and three-year-olds are pretty cute anyway but you know okay so so what about when they're when they were like six you know six you know they're starting to get to be you know a, a little kid not so much a baby anymore and you know did you still love them then and you know and you just kind of keep asking these questions and well what about now you know okay so so alex is 10 now do you do you still love Alex? And, you know, the parents say, oh, of course I love Alex. Da, 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 da. And then you go into the future and, you know, okay, okay. Well, I get that, you know, kids are so lovable, right? What about like, 
you know, but then they become teenagers, you know, and you kind of be silly and joking about this. You know, they're right. teenagers, you know, maybe they're going to cut their hair funny. You know, do you think you'll still love them when they're a teenager? You know, and you go into the future and, and you know, and what at some, some point, you know, there'll be an adult and, you know, they may move out of the house and stuff. Do you think you'd still love them then? And, you know, and you just go on and, um, and then you, you know, and then it's nice sort of at the end to say, okay, so, okay, so I'm hearing that you'll, you'll love them always, but, so when they're older and if they decide to have kids, now they may or may not, I don't know, but if they decide to have kids, then you would be their kids. And then they'll say grandparent, right? Um, and then you're like, oh, you'd be their, their kids, grandparents. Wow. You know, and so then you just, you go like, wow, okay, so I'm here, you always love them and that they're always a part of your family. Wow, that's amazing. And um, okay. And then you just kind of wrap up and then you go on to the, the last part, which is the feeding and, um, and attachment-based questions. So that's, that's kind of the story of love. Yeah, yeah. So what about, well, thank you. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I can see, um, you know, why, why that would be, uh, have a, a very, you know, major impact in terms of the therapy for the child. You also talked about, um, the heart of hearts, um, as another piece of your intervention, yeah. would you like to share a little bit about that with listeners? Yeah. The heart of hearts is it's just a, um, it's just a brief little intervention that you might throw in now and again. It's not it's not meant to be like a, a major intervention, but you're always speaking as if they're you're speaking to the child within the child, the child within the defenses. Right. They're, they're defensive about relationship. They're defensive about, um, you know, because of their own safety needs and all that. Um, so you're always trying to kind of speak to that child within. So the heart of hearts is just um, a chance to kind of speak to that and speak to that in a way that um, uh, hopefully doesn't bring up defensiveness and, and you just mention it and move on. So, so a parent says something like, gosh, I really wish, you know, uh, Susie would, would, you know, just join with the family, just have fun with us. And then as, and then, and maybe the child isn't really at this point interacting a lot in the therapy, but the um, therapist might say, well, you know, I think, I think in her heart of hearts, Susie would really like that too. And then you just move on. You don't, you don't like, cause you don't want to give an opportunity for the child to get to, you know, entrenched in the idea of like, like, I mean, you don't want it to become that at all. You just go, I think in her heart of hearts, she would really like that too. And then you just kind of move on to whatever you're, you're discussing. Um, so that's a, a nice little, uh, nice little piece to just throw in here and there. And again, you have to use it pretty lightly because you don't want it to be like negating the child's experience or um, whatever, but you do want to put out that idea that you know that that child, I mean, I I do carry the, hold the belief that every child really wants to be connected and loved and cared for and and involved, you know, involved positively in a family. So that's where that comes from for me. Um, So that's what that is. Yes. Yes. And I was wondering too, you know, you um, mentioned the attachment narrative earlier. Would you like to go into a little bit more detail for the listeners about that aspect of the therapy? Yeah. I think the attachment narrative is the, um, is really the most important of the talk um, strategies in, in, in Matt. And um, so with the attachment narrative, you start from, um, 
the child's birth, regardless of whether it's in an adoptive family or another family. And you're basically telling the story of, let's say the story of Johnny. This is the story of Johnny. And, you know, you introduce it that way. You know, we're going to we're going to start talking about the story of Johnny. We're going to start with when he was born. Um, and and you usually will ask the child and, and older children will participate quite a bit in this. And this is a really great intervention I found for teens because teens are really interested in their own story and and kind of sharing that and talking about that and mm-hmm. finding out about that. Um, but even with with younger kids, it's it's really great. And so you you start with um, the child's birth, you know, and yes, so do you know where you're born? And um, almost every child knows where they're born, but sometimes they don't, which is always a sign of like, oh, they really have a lack of sort of knowledge of like no one's been telling them their story. They don't know their story. Yeah. Um, and then you. Um, yeah. And then you, you get the parents information. You know, what do you know about when so-and-so was born? And, you know, you, you just start that story and, and hopefully you have um, some history that you already know about the child. Like, you know, that when they were two, uh, they got removed from the home, for instance. Um, so then you, you, you go year by year, you know, you know, do we know anything that happened in, in you know, uh, Johnny's first year? And, um, and, and then you share and talk and, you know, what about, what about their second year? I, I'm aware some really hard things happen in their second year and you start talking about that. And when, when you talk about sort of more traumatic events, you don't go into the kind of detail that you might in like a trauma focused CBT. Um, you more, t- you talk a little bit more generally. Um, I mean, you, you do share enough to know kind of what happened. Oh, you know, okay. So, you know, we say we're talking about the situation where they were removed from the home and, and there were drugs in the home and, you know, say that was the situation. Um, then it'd be like, okay, so I understand that there were, you know, there were some problems in the home, some drugs in the home um, that kept your bio parents from being able to, you know, care right for you. Um, and the main things you want to do as you tell the story is really um, do some corrective work, some sort of you assume that there are some negative cognitions that the child has. Um, most children are egocentric if quote unquote bad things happen, they think it was their fault. So in this sort of scenario, you might say, um, you know, so, um, you know, a lot of times kids think when, when their parents can't care for them, right. They think it might be their fault. And then you, then you bring the parent who's in the room into it, you know, um, mom, do, is there any chance that it was Johnny's fault that his parents couldn't take care of him? And then you have that kind of discussion with the parent and then you do a little psychoeducation for the child's benefit. Um, yeah, isn't it funny? You know, kids always seem to think things that happen are their fault. But, you know, what grownups do is never the kid's fault. And, you you know, so you just kind of help them restory that in the room. And sometimes you're talking to the parent, but the child's listening. Um, and the child, of course, can jump in anytime they want and share what they want. And, um, and you also... Um, you know, if a child's been hurt in the past, um, you also bring in an apology from the parent to the child. And you, even if the parent wasn't the one responsible, because I think as all, all of us as parents, we wished we could have been there if our child was hurt, right? We wished we could have done something different. We wished we could have helped them. Um, and so you bring that into the room. You, you might talk to the parents and say, you know, gosh, it must be hard for you. You know, I, I know it's hard for you to hear about this. You must feel pretty bad about that. I know you weren't responsible, but I bet you wish you could have been there. And you kind of elicit that from the parent. And then you say, well, can you apologize to Johnny that 
you know, even though it wasn't your fault that this thing happened, can you apologize to them that you weren't able to be there at that time? Um, and and I again, I haven't had a parent balk at this, you know, because as a parent, you wish you were there. You wish you had been able to protect their child, your child. And so the parent expresses that to the child. You know, I'm so sorry. I wish I could have protected you. Um, I wish I could have been there. I wish, you know, you didn't have to go through that on your own. Um, and what this does is it it. it gives it, it takes it takes the burden from the child onto the adults um like if you're apologizing to someone for something it's not their fault <laughs> you know um almost by definition so it kind of re, it kind of reinforces that idea and it um um yeah and it it just it helps with that sort of sense of responsibility and um and takes it away from the child uh, and then you might talk about like how things especially if you've been talking about something hard that happened talk about how things are different now you always want to leave the child with a sense of security like well how are they different now how do we know that you know what what if something like that happened what you know and, and so you talk about the resources the child has both internal and external you talk about you know how the parent now is is you know behaves differently than that than the parent did then, or sometimes it's a biological parent who's changed their 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 um, lifestyle. Um, anyway, so you, you always do want to move on to like how are things different now to, to uh, increase the sense of security, not leave the child in a place of like anxiety around around that situation. Um, and then you just and and it usually takes a number of sessions for the uh, to do the attachment narrative, and you just go year by year, and you always you always want to end on a positive as on a positive note. Um, maybe after you've done, you know, what's different now and, and you can tell the child's feeling regulated or whatever, then you might move on to the, the end, the end, the frame, which also is regulating the feeding and the attachment questions. Um, so that's, Do I you think want it, to, it in a nutshell. So with the attachment questions, is there anything more you want to say about those specifically? Yeah. So at the end, you know, you do a little feeding, a little feeding ritual. And like you said, this, this does reflect, I did, uh, this does reflect sort of therapy concepts and ideas. Um, and uh, so you just have some little food that the parent has agreed to and the child likes. Um, and you ask questions, you ask questions um, of the parent and the child. And these are attached, what I would call attachment based questions um, on like times they had fun together, something mm -hmm. they look forward to doing with each other, um, a time they laughed with, with each other. Um, and I, I do this every, you know, I would do this every week at the end and it, it, it helps them end on a really good, good place. And it's, it, uh, it's consistent with the idea. Again, I, I think I mentioned early, early last time we talked that um, narrative therapy is a therapy that I really like. And it's consistent with the idea of stringing pearls where you're trying to take discrete events in the child's life and string them together to make a new story or a healthier story. And so we're taking discrete events of like times they had fun with the family, things that they enjoyed, um, time they laughed together um, and kind of creating a new story by, by sort of highlighting these events um, along a timeline. And again, it can also go into the future. You know, what are you looking forward to doing with, with uh, your child next week? Or, and you ask the child too, what are you looking forward to doing with your mom next week or your, or your dad, if it happens to be a dad. Um, and, and, you know, what about when they're older, you know, um, the parents will say things like, I'm looking forward to when they graduate and I, we can celebrate together or, you know, someday I want to go to Hawaii with them. You know, it's, you can go into the future as long as it's realistic. <laughs> you don't want to set up unrealistic expectations. But um, so, again, you're just, again, stringing a story. And one of the really important things in MMAT is um, is repetition. Um so you're doing this every single week. One week isn't going to be enough to kind of shift a child's um, 
sort of dominant narrative of their life. But you're doing this every single week. You're doing the attachment-based play every single week. Um, so these are building a new story um, for them. And the repetition, again, is, is really helpful to kind of make that happen for them. Yes, yes. That is so important. So you're, you know, with this narrative, you're, you're building a coherent story and you know addressing some negative cognitions the child might have about what happened and you know even relational repair where you mentioned the apology so and obviously other components i'm not citing every single thing (laughs) um but you know because a lot of people hear about trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy i think it is it was important that you pointed out and the narrative in that therapy is very specific and the mode of intervention is systematic desensitization and you're talking about something very different here um so i think that was an important distinction that you pointed out yeah that's correct also if i might add um with the attachment uh, narrative too another piece that i found is really really seems to be really helpful is highlighting the um the, the helpful things and the protective things that the parent has done because kids are often totally unaware or they have not really tuned into the fact that their parent now is trying to help them or tried to help them in, in the past. Um, and that can help shift that narrative to that sort of uh, idea that maybe parents or adults aren't safe people or, or aren't helpful people is if you can highlight that along the storyline as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very important. In fact, everybody has negative bias in their brain. That's just kind of how the brain is. So, you know, all the more so if you've had a lot of really scary, troubling, traumatic experiences. So yeah, yeah, definitely. So a lot of, as we are winding down here, I'm aware of our time, a lot of the parts of your approach that you were just speaking about, talk about, I had the parent do this and I had the parent say that and I asked the parent this. And I know you have a separate part of your book that you devote specifically to working with parents. So I wondered if we might move to some of that as we wrap things up, because anybody that knows anything about my work knows, I feel like the parent component is really, really essential. So I'd love if we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the, yeah, you're absolutely right. The parent component is absolutely essential. I would agree. And um, yeah, so your role with the parents is um, sort of getting them on board um, so that they're okay with, you know, treating their 12 year old, maybe a little bit younger in the, the play, right? Um, so you want to get them on board, make sure that they're all good with that. Um, you also do, um, uh, you, you want to ask them like during, if, in the sessions, like you can be responsible for sort of discipline in the session. They're responsible for discipline every other 24 hour period, but you want to take them out of that role for a moment. And and most parents are really happy to do that. They're like, sure. (laughs) Yeah, I'll do that. Um, So, so, so you, you do that. Um, And you plan the therapy enough ahead of time so that when you do ask them these things, I, I, you know, you don't hopefully have them balk at, you know, making that apology for instance, or whatever. Um, um, 
And uh, yeah, and then there's sort of attachment based parenting. And I actually wrote a whole separate book on that. And I know there's other books. I know you have a book. There's a lot of great books out there. So I, I do encourage therapists to really get grounded in that so that they know what they're um, so that they have a sense of what they're what they're doing and what they're talking about with parents, um, because parents will come in with specific situations and, you know, this happened this week. Yes. And what about that? And da, 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 da. And I didn't know how to handle this. And so you really want to get yourself grounded as a therapist in those in those um, in those parenting kind of strategies and how they're different, maybe from more traditional sort of parenting strategies and the importance of safety and the importance of connection in the home and all that, all that sort of thing. Um, and so with MMAT, you ideally are meeting also individually with the parents, um, especially at the beginning um, so that you're providing that support and, and you're not necessarily dealing with behavior in the session, parent child session. Um, so the parents need somewhere to, to talk about that and find strategies and, and work with you and also get support. A lot of parents, um, uh, maybe have had good parenting strategies, but they're not working for this particular child. And so that's frustrating for them. Or the child acts out primarily at home or with the parents, and they're getting a lot of sort of negative feedback in the community about like they're doing something wrong, or you should do it this way or do it that way, or sometimes even real negative kind of suggestions like, you know, I don't know, you should just put him in his room for, you know, whatever. Um, so, um, right. yeah, so it's really, really critical. It's really critical that the parents feel that support and um, feel that they're on a team with someone um, who kind of understands them and can support them and, you know, work with them and be there with them and isn't going to just you know, um, judge them. I guess most parents are pretty concerned about being judged as well because they're judging themselves for the most yes. part. So. Yes. So one uh, final question about this aspect of working with parents. Is there a part of your model that involves exploring the parent's own attachment history? You know, I think that's a, that would be an excellent part of the model. It's not actually something that I have done, but I think that it would be... Um, Absolutely. If I'm going to evolve this model, I might evolve it with that. I think that's an excellent, excellent strategy. Um, um, yeah, because I think we're, um, yeah, if this model falls short, it is when the parents have their own severe attachment challenges and maybe, and, you know, and so looking at that could maybe uh, help that situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So obviously we share that you have a book about the model and, um, and then you have the, would you call it a companion book or a separate book? The one about the parenting or how to, it, how to uh, it, it's, it's pretty standalone. I mean, I think a parent could just pick it up and read it and not feel like they, you know, need to understand the other book. Um, and some of the information at the beginning, it's a little bit ex more expanded in my parenting book about like sort of the underlying uh, ideas around it, understanding attachment injuries um, is a little more expanded in the book, but it's the same concepts as yes. in, in the other book. But then, of course, in the parent parents book, we go into strategies and um, yes. again, starting with the basics of creating safety and then building connection and okay. um, and also strategies for helping them them help their child restory. Um, it doesn't just need to happen in the therapy session. So, um, and then of course, some strategies for dealing with behavior because that's always yes, what parents that, want, right? That, like, that, like, that's why they. <laughs> came in the first place right That's why they you came know? in the first place what yes. do i do when so and so does this like okay so um so yeah it kind of covers all those all those pieces yes and and what are the 
best, what's the best place for people to get the book or how do you recommend they access it? And are there any other resources you would like to share with listeners related to the model? Um, well, for the for my books, uh, one of which is, is called uh, MAP, Multimodal Attachment Therapy, um, and the other one's called Understanding Attachment Injuries in Children and How to Help how to help a guide for parents and caregivers. Both those books you can find on Amazon, but you can also order them through any place that you can order books like uh, Barnes and Noble or, or any other kind of place. Okay. Um, okay. Um, other, other works. Um, I think your works are great. I think I love Dan, Daniel Siegel. Um, and is it Tina Payne? Is that the right name? Tina Payne Bryson. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, She's actually and her work. Um, just was on the podcast. Her podcast re- released just recently. Um, yeah. She's lovely. And and Bruce Perry, I think, is the staple uh, <laughs> in the field. Um, yeah. A um, lot, lot of great, uh, great books out there. Great works out great. there. Great. Well, um, before we wrap up here, if there's anything you want to share about a website of yours or anything like that that you want listeners to be aware of, please feel free to do that before we close. Okay. Uh, the website would be uh, www.m-mat.org. And on that site, you'll find uh, information about both books. You'll also find a resources page that has some uh, some different resources and, um, yeah, and information about any upcoming trainings. I do have an upcoming training in October. Uh, the first Zoom training I will have will be doing, so that'll be interesting. Uh in these times. Um, but anyway, you can go to that website and find out about any of those things. Well, good. Well, Catherine, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us today here on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. It's really been such a pleasure to talk with you and hear about your work and the model you put together. So thank you so much for your generosity with your time. Well, thank you. Thank you very, very much. And I really appreciate this opportunity to put this information out there. Great. Well, bye-bye for now. Mm, Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 